You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, February 19th, 2023. My name is Bill McCann. I'll start with a featured story, Remaking Country's Gender Politics, One Barroom Weeper at a Time. The Nashville songwriter Shane McAnally, McAnally is behind many of country's music's number one hits, which aren't as straight as they might seem. This is a story by Carlo Rotilia. Monday morning at the office, Shane McAnally was writing a country song with Josh Osborne, a regular collaborator. McAnally compact, tight-strung in jeans and T-shirt, sat on a chair with his sneakered feet up and a laptop balanced on his thighs, an acoustic guitar, and an enormous carry-out cup of iced tea within reach. Osborne, mellower in a purple hoodie, sat on a couch cradling another guitar in which he picked out a looping groove in the key of A. They started with a line they heard spoken at a songwriter's gathering, I drank alone a long time. When someone raised a glass in appreciation of getting together with fellow musicians after pandemic-induced isolation, McAnally recalls that he and Osborne exchanged a wordless look. That's a song. Now they were writing it. When one of them had an idea, he would half-moan nonsense syllables as placeholders for the parts he hadn't worked out yet. Yeah, that whiskey sure used to burn... Now it's sweet on your lips. Turn. The other would murmur along in harmony, a fraction of a beat behind, testing resonance and mouthfeel. The lines of the first verse had a cantilevered quality typical of McAnally's songs, surprising the ear a little and adding a sense of urgency by going past the expected rhythmic endpoint, and wrapping around into the next in a lilting run-on. I don't mind if they turn on the lights, and last call don't phase me at all. My glass was half empty before you were with me. The developing song featured McAnally's favorite chord change. A three minor just breaks my heart, he says. But his distinctive lyrical flow was the surest mark of his authorship. Plenty of popular songwriting sounds as if the words have been written to fit the groove. But McAnally's songs sound as if the groove grows organically from the poetic rhythm inhering in the words. I can almost instantly tell when I hear something Shane has written, Casey Musgraves told me by mail, even when it's sung by another artist. Once... McAnally and Osborne got going. The song came in a rush. After they finished, they recorded a rough take to serve as a guide for a demo they could pitch to singers. McAnally would normally sing the rough take, but he'd been having problems with his voice, so Osborne sang it. They talked about whether the song might be right for Blake Shelton. I Drank Alone is currently on hold for Carly Pierce, meaning she has the right of first refusal to record it. Afterward, McAnally 
told me that Sam Hunt, another regular collaborator, talks about the window being open for a few minutes. It's like God walks through the room and you better be holding a guitar when it happens. Such inspiration makes frequent visits to this cozily appointed room in the Nashville headquarters of Smack Songs, McGanley's music publishing and management company framed posters of country artists who have recorded McAnally's songs cover one wall. Another is tiered with 10 songs I wish I'd written awards from the Nashville Songwriters Association International, honoring songs like Merry-Go-Round, a hit for Musgraves, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316, Keith Urban, and Body Like a Back Road, Sam Hunt. 34 straight weeks at number one, a record at the time. The windows look out on Music Row, the stretch of 16th Avenue South, lined with the offices of record labels, radio networks, recording studios, public relations firms, and music licensing and publishing outfits like ASCAP and BMI. It's the Wall Street and Madison Avenue of country music, as well as a hub for gospel, pop, Christian music, and other genres. Possibly it's the place on earth with the greatest concentration of expertise for creating and distributing popular songs. McAnally, who has been wildly successful at reaching a lot of listeners and winning critical acclaim by making songs for other people to sing, would seem to be the quintessential Nashville insider. He's co-written or produced 39 songs that reached number one on Billboard's Country Airplay, or Hot Country Songs charts. Country Air Check, which tracks radio airplay, puts his total at 43. And depending on how you count Canadian, European, and other charts, the number passes 50. Plus, of course, many more hits the top out short of number one. He revived and is co-president of the historic label Monument Records, a joint venture with Sony. He's produced albums by Musgrave, Hunt, Pierce, Walker, Hayes, Midland, and Old Dominion, among others. He's won three Grammys, 19 NSAI, I Wish I'd Written Awards, and an armful of honors from the Academy of Country Music and the Country Music Association. He has more CMA Song of the Year nominations than any other songwriter in history. But while... McAnally may be a high-end craftsman operating deep within Nashville's music industrial complex. He also sees himself as an insurgent who has put himself in position to work subtle, far-reaching changes on an industry that has historically been hostile to what he represents. For most of the past 15 years, McAnally has been known as one of the very few out gay men in a position of creative influence in mainstream country music. Attentive listeners can discern in his body of work a gradual effort to rewrite the genre's DNA to encourage mutation in its famously hidebound assumptions about sex and gender. It's not that the industry doesn't know about the full range of human sexual behavior. Rather, part of its brand has been to act as if it doesn't want to know about large sections of that range. Most country music fans may simply assume that the many romantic songs McAnally has written refer to loved ones of the opposite sex, 
especially when sung by singers they assume to be straight. But, as he likes to point out, those songs work just as well for same-sex attraction. The whiskey sweet lips in I Drank Alone could belong to a man or a woman, and he would rather not force the listener to choose. When I asked him how conscious he was of trying to transform country's gender politics, he said, Oh, it's conscious, but it's also just who I am. I think part of it is being gay. I don't like speaking in the masculine or the feminine. I feel like it corners things, compartmentalizes. As far back as McAdley can remember, he's all thought in songs. He hears fragments and nuggets of songs in the speech and lives of family, friends, colleagues, strangers, and characters in the Southern memoirs and biographies he likes to read. His mother's turn of phrase, for instance, have helped inspire the choruses and hits like Mary Go Round, Mama's Hooked on Mary Kay, Brother's Hooked on Mary Jane, and Daddy's Hooked on Mary Two Doors Down. And Miranda Lampert's Mama's Broken Heart, Go and Fix Your Makeup, Girl, It's Just a Breakup, Run and Hide Your Crazy and Start Acting Like a Lady. When McAnally was a little boy in Mineral Wells, Texas, he would pace around the perimeter of the parking lot at his grandmother's clothing store, making up lyrics in his head about people he knew, superimposing the words onto the melodies of songs he had heard at home, in church or during rides in his father's Jeep, when the playlist skewed to the classic country of Merle Haggard, George Strait. That primal songwriting scene in the parking lot serves as a reminder that new songs come, at least in part, from old songs. Standard country music templates like the heartbreak tale or the evocation of small town life stood ready to hand when, at, when someone said something that suggested the germ of a song. Think of a song as an ancient technology for imposing form and meaning on experience a device for filtering the chaotic noise of inner life and the world around us so it can be translated into meaningful signal. Or think of a song as a container into which you can pour a distilled feeling that others can then imbibe by playing or singing or listening to. The signature feeling in McAnally's songs, Even I Drank Alone, a story of love found, is a yearning restless quality. He described to me as that sense of unrequited almost. It's almost right. You're almost there, but you can't quite. Musgraves told me, Shane and I always love finding the melancholy aspect inside of the greater feelings of happiness and love. Or as his friend and frequent songwriting collaborator Brandy Clark puts it, he's just a little bit addicted to heartbreak. The unrequited almost running through McAnally's songs makes an ideal fit for the cathartic blend of sadness and joy that comes factory installed in country music, a hurt-obsessed genre rich in dark songs about love and jaunty songs about sorrow. McAnally cites a packed toxic relationship as a continuing inspiration. But when we talked about his own experience, he kept coming back to his father, a certain ultimate concept of a Texas man. He went on, he and his two brothers, they played football. There were stories about how wild they were. 
He was a badass, and they were small-town kings. McAdley's parents, high school sweethearts, had a volatile relationship. It lasted 12 years, and they got divorced and remarried in the middle of it. Very George Jones, a reference to the towering marital melodrama between Jones and Tammy Wynette, owners of two of the greatest heartache-drenched voices of all time. Classic country music themes like hard work, prison, he recalls that his father served a four-year term that ended the marriage for good, and abandonment also figure in McAnally's family story, a gingerly respectful cordiality of now prevails between son and father. I wanted to be like him, he told me. That was the great out-of-reach thing I aspired to, and being gay, thinking of it as being a sissy, that kept me in the closet for a long time. In our conversations, McAnally pointed to Dolly Parton's Here You Come Again and the Eddie Arnold Ray Charles ballad of Hopeless Longing, You Don't Know Me, as touchstone songs for him. Both are nominally about romance, but the feelings they express extend well beyond. Continuing to reach out for someone who's just not quite available, McAnally says, that's my dad. McAnally wasn't out yet when he sang and wrote his way from Mineral Wells to Nashville in the 90s and took his shot at onstage singing career. When stardom eluded him, he moved to Los Angeles for a few years, where he heard more than his share of last calls and wrote a lot of songs, some of which were picked up by well-known singers. 2007, he returned to Nashville as a battle-tested songwriter, and he also came out as a gay man in an industry that had always insisted on the closet. Now at 48, he's two years sober and raising 10-year-old twins with his husband, Michael McAnally Baum, who is the president of Smack Songs. Smack Songs is spelled with capital letters S-M-A-C-K-S-O-N-G-S. If, the, if these days... Candley is no longer regarded as a lone exception. You might credit his prominent example. Nashville's mayor presided at his nuptials with Baum in 2017 for helping embolden other gay men and women associated with country to come out. A growing list that includes T.J. Osborne of the Brothers Osborne, Lily Rose, Orville Peck, Lil Nas X, Brandy Carlisle, and Brandy Clark. But McAnally says, I don't think we've actually come that far in terms of major commercial figures. Baby steps are huge, but they're baby steps. He notes that most of the names on the out list are identified with Americana, pop, or behind-the-scenes songwriting. I'm stuck in the habit of what Nashville thinks. He says, by which he means that he measures progress in terms of onstage stars in the industry's commercial mainstream. TJ is such an important part of the long-term story because he's trying to show his queerness and his allyship to any sort of queer person, but he's half of a duo and they're not in competition with the Jason Aldeans or Luke Bryans of the world because they're left of center. And Lily Rose seems totally authentic, and she's getting close to a big hit, but she hasn't had one yet. 
I do see that people are fighting for it, though, and that matters. At times, he's felt that he had something extra to prove. When gay songwriters come up to me and they're like, you inspire me, I say, you just have to be better and outwork them, like Annalise says. I was like, I can outbro you. I can outcountry you, which comes from this fear of being stereotyped. Like, well, he's gay, so he probably can't write songs that Luke Bryan or George Strait would want to sing. Thinking constantly about what others want to sing and what the industry would allow them to sing has taken a toll on McAnally's, on McAnally, a feelingful guy prone to intense self-examination. He believes that it's at the root of his voice problems. After a lifetime of being able to sing whatever he felt like singing, the last couple of years, he's lost the ability to sing in full voice or even hold a note. He can knock around musical ideas in a songwriting session, but any attempt to stretch his voice, even to make himself heard in conversation in a loud room, can cause it to seize up. The diagnosis is muscular tension dysphonia, a vocal cousin of the yips, the twisties, and other such sudden inexplicable crises that can render a seasoned athlete unable to perform. What happened to Simone Biles is what made me decide to get help, he told me. They tell me there's nothing wrong with my body that they can find, so it's mental, spiritual, but it feels physical. Dysphonia troubles many singers. His vocal therapist told him that she counted nine other artists with whom she had worked when she saw him on a CMA Awards telecast. And its onset can be mysterious, often causing profound doubts to set in. It's hard not to feel that your body's trying to tell you something by refusing to do what has always come naturally. As McAnley tells the story of his career, the music he made in his youth as a would-be Nashville star was less than authentic because he was closeted. Then he came out and wrote more authentic songs for himself to sing that it turned out others wanted to sing. But hitting the jackpot as a songwriter ushered in another phase of unrequited almost. My material voice has diminished as my metaphorical voice has diminished, he says, tracing the roots of the affliction to the moment he realized he could win praise and riches by writing songs for others to sing. You become a box checker, he says, especially if you've had a lot of hits. You can't help but imitate what's worked before. If you're always saying, would Luke Bryan like this? You've compromised yourself. Yes, his success has taken him deep into the machinery of Nashville's establishment, but the words he uses to describe his situation there, boxed in, claustrophobic, smothered, are the same ones he used to describe the panic that comes over him when he feels that his voice is going to fail and make him look foolish. McAnley is been spending more time away from Nashville of late in New York, traveling in Africa with his family, pricing houses with his husband in California, and that seems to revive his voice. These days he finds that sometimes, under certain conditions, he can sing. There will be an hour when my voice feels all right, told me, and I can do it 
where it's quiet, nobody in the studio but me and the engineer, the right reverb, vocal sound in my headphone, and I feel very safe and very much in control of my singing. He's been using such moments to record songs for a self-funded solo album he plans to put out this year. They're quiet, introspective songs written from his own hard-won, middle-aged perspective, a point of view of little interest to country music stars. Too young for the old, too old for the young, he said, quoting from a song on the album. They don't want to say that. Saying that, singing that, speaking as himself, may be a remedy. He expresses confidence that his voice will recover. I'm closer to it every day, he said. My physical voice has some spiritual link to finding my own voice. And I know that when I finally get to say it the way I want to say it, my voice will be there. If Nashville is the problem as well as the promised land, where does McAnally go from there? Warner Brothers is currently developing a TV series he created that is based on his life, and maybe there's a book or two in his future. But right now, there's his current big non-Nashville or get-out-of-Nashville songwriting project, the one that has been taking him to New York. Shucked, a musical he co-wrote with Brandy Clark that will open on Broadway on April 4th. Previews begin March 8th. The musical is this great source of inspiration, he said, because it's something else entirely different. Writing show tunes allows him to use a greater variety of chords, and different emotional colors that he do, than he does in country music, he told me, and also requires him to do some things he isn't used to doing, like writing songs that tell only part of a story. Shucked is a fable about Maisie a girl from a rustic hamlet cut off from the world by fields of corn, and a crisis that obliges her to journey to the big city to save her fellow provincials. The songs mostly have a traditional Broadway feel, including one in which Maisie glories in the cosmopolitan wonders of Tampa. Through though a couple of rousing numbers for supporting characters display the expertise of veteran country hitmakers. The book by Robert Horn, who wrote the Broadway musicals Tootsie and 13, is full of broad, frequently ribald yucks that try to tiptoe between lovingly evoking small-town sensibilities and exploiting crude stereotypes. That's where Shucked displays its origins in Hee Haw, the TV variety show that ran for 23 seasons fueled by a blend of corn pone humor and high-test country music. More than a decade ago, the keepers of the Hee Haw franchise approached McAnally about adapting the show for the stage, a connection that has mostly disappeared in the musical's developmental backstory. But it persists in the way that shucked goofs on country ways, a deceptively delicate layering of irony and shtick. McAnally says that he was also inspired by the Book of Mormon, to write songs with the simple objective of having fun rather than the endless descent into heartbreak that he pursues at his day job. At that day job, meanwhile, McAnally is still writing and producing songs for other singers. I have more songs in the pipeline than ever, and six songs I wrote or produced in the top 50, he 
told me in early February. I work more efficiently when I'm away from Nashville. His ongoing revision of country's gender politics also continues to advance, one heartbroken or party-hardy line at a time. Sometimes it's McAnally who writes the line that says something that hasn't been said before on country radio, and sometimes he's the collaborator giving someone else permission to write or sing such a line. Progress might show up as a little surprise that tests taboo with a light touch, like the sing-along chorus of Musgrave's Follow Your Arrow. So make lots of noise, kiss lots of boys, or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. And if the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, roll up a joint or don't and follow your arrow wherever it points. Country radio, which still exercises outside influence on what becomes a hit, wouldn't play the song. And yet, Follow Your Arrow is one of the lowest charting songs ever to win CMA's Song of the Year, which McAnalyst takes as a sign that the industry recognizes the change it made in what mainstream country music could say. McAnalyst is known for songs like Follow Your Arrow or Ashley McBride's hard-bitten one-night standards that open up new dimensions of agency for female narrators and for songs that open up new dimensions of vulnerability for male ones. Kenny Chesney told me by email that he was eager to record the angsty Somewhere With You, which became a number one hit for him because it was unlike anything out there anything I'd heard in terms of the intensity of the emotion or the way the song moved. When popular genres change, they do so almost imperceptibly at first, then all at once. Like writing a haiku about cherry blossoms or a western about a laconic hero with good aim, writing a barroom weeper or a cheating song means walking the line between doing it right and making it new. A commercially successful country song must nail obligatory elements of the form so that music and industry insiders and fans hear it as something they're already inclined to like. But it also must rearrange familiar elements to refresh the formula. If enough bits of genetic information are rewritten in that process, though any individual change may be tiny, after a while, you might suddenly notice that the song on country radio, songs on country radio are about inviting your gender unspecified object of affection to climb into your hybrid pickup so you can drive down a dirt road to the unfracked watering hole where bathers of all identities and preferences are welcome. The writer Carlo Motella is a professor of English at Boston College and the author of The World is Always Coming to an End, Pulling Together and Apart in a Chicago Neighborhood. Now I'll read a letter of recommendation. A Secret for Falling Asleep So Good, it's a na British national treasure. Tune into Serenity with the BBC shipping forecast a weather report from deep in the analog era. It's a story by Grace Linden. 
Most nights, I don't sleep well. So to relax, I often listen to audiobooks or the radio. Other people's words keep me from sliding into the canyon of doom, where all around shouts of, you're screwed, reverberate. For many months, I put on murder mysteries. But in an effort to embrace a more soothing sort of rest, I started listening to compilations of the shipping forecast, a BBC Radio 4 production that is no fancier than it name that its name suggests. It is simply a program featuring weather reports that narrate the gales and tides around the British Isles. If some people doze off to the sound of rain, I fall asleep to broadcasters announcing the rain that is to come. The prototype for the shipping forecast was established after a particularly nasty storm in 1859, killed hundreds of people and wrecked more than 100 ships in the Irish Sea. In its aftermath, Vice Admiral Robert Fitzroy, founder of the UK's meteorological department and originator of the term forecast, set up a maritime storm warning system in 1861. Predictions were first sent by telegraph. Radio broadcasts followed much later in 1911, but were interrupted soon thereafter by the onset of World War I. Seven years after the armistice, the BBC sent out its first long-wave transmission of weather shipping from the Air Ministry in London. At some point, the name changed to the shipping forecast, and the number of broadcasters per day increased from 2 to 4. Read at 5.20 a.m., 12.01 p.m., 5.54 p.m., and 12.48 a.m., Greenwich Mountain Time, each briefing begins with the same words, and now the shipping forecast issued by the Met Office. Although each individual transmission has traditionally been short, limited to 380 words at most, and often not more than a minute or two of speech, when heard in hour-long compilations, the shipping forecast is poetic and hypnotic a free-form ode to the seas. The forecast presents a kind of audio hour tour. The forecast presents a kind of audio tour. The announcer begins in Viking, a sea area near the Orkney archipelago, before directing the listener's attention around the British Isles, intoning rhythmic phrases like Bright, Portland, Biscay, good, occasionally poor, becoming very poor at times in Plymouth, or low southeast Iceland, 1,000, losing its identity by the same time. What linguistic splendor resides in these descriptions? What possibilities? To those like me, who've never been involved in maritime culture, the language of the shipping forecast can be indecipherable. Without a weather writer's style guide at hand, how are you to know that backing winds move counterclockwise, whereas veering winds go in the other direction? Or that soon, which means in a short time, is very different from imminent, which denotes urgency. While both words suggest immediacy, in fact, 
weather considered to be coming soon is expected within 6 to 12 hours, whereas weather described as imminent should arrive within 6. These radioed predictions provide nostalgia in their simplicity and analog beauty, which may be why millions have tuned in to listen over the years, even though most of us don't spend our lives at sea. These days, fishermen and sailors have access to more precise data via satellites and the Internet. They no longer need four daily forecasts to tell them which way to hoist their sails. And anyway, soon there will be only the early morning and late night reports. There are plans to sunset the two updates broadcast on long wave radio. 2022, the BBC announced its intention to end long wave transmission sometime in the future, citing the cost of equipment replacement and technological obsolescence. It would be a pity if the segment ever fell silent though because the shipping forecast is older than the BBC itself and has become somewhat of a national treasure in England. Radiohead made allusions to the shipping forecast on its album Kid A. Carol Ann Duffy, the former British Poet Laureate, concluded her poem Prayer by evoking its locales. Darkness outside, inside the radio's prayer, Rockall, Malin, Dogger Finisterre. During her appearance on the BBC radio show Desert Island Discs, Dame Judy Dench, another national treasure, chose the forecast as one of eight recordings she would want to accompany her if she were a castaway, citing her love of Finisterre, Britain's retired name for a sea area off the coast of Spain. I love the whole idea of Land's End, she said. Dench and I are similar in that way. In San Francisco, where I'm from, there's an actual park called Land's End, which overlooks the entrance to the Golden Gate Strait. Growing up on a peninsula means that topographical borders have always been crucial to my sense of self. There's nothing quite like being on the brink. It's important to feel small, to probe the edge of things and know that you can go no further. A sensation that is harder to summon in London, where the city's borders are often made of concrete and can feel ill-defined. Vastness, as such, is appealing, and the world is so very vast. Long-wave broadcasts travel far, hugging the planet as they make their way overseas. Like the sea itself, the shipping forecast is a reminder of the larger, more elemental forces at play, those things that are much more powerful than any of our individual worries or wants. For eons, there is nothing but the stars and estuaries, the winds, the shore. After making his way out of the mythical cave, man set off to the sea, where the water proffered new realms for exploration. And so, like the ancient mariners before me, I'm often awake in the middle of the night, falling asleep to the mysteries of the deep. The author Grace Linden is a writer and art historian. She lives in London. I'll read 
Screenland, the Screenland section of the magazine in honor of the NBA All-Star weekend, this weekend celebration. Keep the dunk contest weird. It's a campy celebration of basketball's pugnacious spirit and a jolt to the predictable pageantry of the NBA. This is a story by Katie Heindel. The NBA's slam dunk contest is the showiest, most polarizing, and occasionally most transcendent event of the league's all-star weekend. The most captivating contest in recent years took place in February 2020. The Miami Heat forward Derek Jones Jr. opened by jumping over his teammate Bam Adebayo and then breezed into a 360-degree reverse tornado dunk. The Milwaukee Bucks' Pat Connaughton opened with an allusion to white men can't jump, clearing the Brewster's star, the Brewers star left fielder, Christian Yelich, and the 2008 champion, Dwight Howard, made his fourth appearance at the event, revealing a Superman tank top emblazoned with a tribute to Kobe Bryant. The first round held all the now traditional markers of the contest, costumes, people used as props, self-referential rabbit holes, and yeah, plenty of bounce. In the final round, Jones dug back to the most iconic moment in the contest's, contest's, contest's history by channeling Michael Jordan's Jumpman logo, running down the floor and taking off a step inside the free throw line to fly to the rim for a one-handed slam. For his final try, Orlando's Aaron Gordon did a speedy, one-two toe tap and took off seemingly in slow motion to vault over the seven-foot-six tackle fall, leapfrogging up to grab the ball resting on Fall's nape and hoist it into the basket. It wasn't even the best dunk in the contest, but for better or worse, it came to encapsulate all the inventiveness, camaraderie, and athleticism that a dunk contest can bring. The reaction was thunderous. Seems most spectators felt relief that Gordon, one of the league's best dunkers, competing in his third contest, had finally won it. But after a prolonged period of deliberation among the judges, the former NBA players Scottie Pippen and Dwayne Wade, the current WNBA player Candace Parker, the musician Common, and the actor Chadwick Boseman, they gave Gordon's dunk a score that left him in second place. Gordon, along with seemingly everyone else, was incredulous. Players watched with their mouths open, wide open, or their hands on their heads in dismay, and commentators like Kenny Smith called the outcome highway robbery. That outsized response, farcical in any other context, speaks to just how much the dunk contest means today. What became an annual event in 1984 with nine superstars, including winners like Jordan and Vince Carter, has been morphed into a niche event for up-and-comers and, and high-flying outliers one that is simultaneously celebrated and maligned for its theatrics. 
The dunk contest is the only all-star event that invites suspense. The celebrity game is painful to watch. The rising stars game is a fun but disorganized jumble. And the skills challenge is an expeditious but usually rote replay. The all-star game switched formats recently, but is still mostly an overly friendly, rhythmic seesaw of the best basketball players in the world lightly jogging back and forth up the court. The dunk contest, All-Star Weekend's midpoint, is an overproduced, sponsorship-heavy, blurry three days of predictable pageantry. has become its weird little beating heart. It's one of professional sports' last, strange, silly, subtext-free, and wonderfully overwrought occasions. In order to appreciate the dunk contest helps to understand the move it revolves around. The dunk's official origins are murky. The word dunk was used as early as 1935 to describe a shooting movement that may or may not have been the shot as we know it today. Wherever it started, by the 1940s, it began to draw ire from critics who claimed that it was diminishing the value of more traditional shooting and the tenets of accuracy and passing. When dominant college athletes like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Lou Alcindor, added it to their repertoire, criticism of the dunk often had racial undertones or overtones, retrospectively. In 1967, the NCAA banned the dunk, and during the nine-year period that the move was outlawed, the directive was known as the Lou Alcindor Rule. At the pro level, the shot became even became more prominent. The American Basketball Association held the first official dunk contest in 1976 to sell more tickets and show off its talent. And by the early 80s, the NBA began using special rims that accommodated dunking. A manifestation of vulnerability, intense clarity, power, and ability, the dunk exists in a split-second span of decision-making. The dunker toys with velocity and time itself. The move offers a break in the sport's fourth wall. It's a reminder that pro basketball is, in fact, meant to be entertaining, despite how serious and moneyed the game has become. In a league known for the personalities of its players, the dunk is the most signature move there is because it's dictated by a player's particular tendencies. It's an autograph scrawled in the air. It's no wonder that the dunk not the three-point shot or the crossover, is the move that's most immortalized in posters. It's a snapshot of basketball's overwhelming grandeur. Although it's become common in contemporary gameplay, even the best players get dunked on. Posterizing someone used to be considered an ego-ender. The idea was that the dunker turned the defender into a joke. Now the action is just part of the sports iconography. The move is so normalized that references to it have entered pop culture lexicons. To dunk on someone is to vehemently make fun of or criticize them. So often the dunk is seen as a humiliating gesture, but maybe it's better to lean into the second definition. Dunking is an emphatic form of critique. When players dunk, they undermine physical limitations. As a forum for this kind of epic 
athletic drama, the dunk contest, allows contestants to lean into basketball's theatricality and the audacity it takes to fly and potentially fail at a high level. Dunkers, by necessity, always go big. I've embraced this quality in my own life as a reminder to be bold. I have the words dunk contest tattooed on my arm. The act of slamming a ball in one vociferous swoop is one of the stagiest things a player can do. Dunking puts the player in league with great performers of all kinds, actors, wrestlers, rappers. It's literally over the top. At Gordon's post-contest news conference, he appeared crestfallen. He suggested that he would never compete in another dunk contest. Two months later, he released 9 out of 10, a diss track aimed at Dwayne Wade. In the song's video, Gordon sips Wade's branded wine and walks the knife's edge between wincing overindulgence and gotta-hand-it-to-him commitment. That spectacle is as campy as any of Gordon's competition slams. I'll read a letter um, in The Ethicist. My friend won't leave her abusive husband. What do I do? The magazine's ethicist columnist on the support we can give friends stuck in a dangerous relationship. And the ethicist is Kwame Anthony Apaya. I have a good friend whom I love and care about. She's married to a man whose alcoholism has gotten worse over the years. He's also both verbally abusive and controlling of her. They have a son who's 12. My friend participates in Al-Anon, a support group for friends and family of alcoholics, and is also going to therapy. We talk about once a week, and she tells me awful stories about her husband's drinking and subsequent abuse. I've talked to her about leaving and emphasized the support that I and other friends would give. She maintains that she's not ready to leave. She has a good job with benefits and salary, so it's not a financial issue. I'm never sure what I can say to her to let her know that I support her, but think her husband's abuse of her is unacceptable. I heard a podcast on this subject advising, saying something like, I know how smart you are and that you'll know when to leave. And I've used that lie a lot. Recently, her husband picked up her son from a friend's house and drove with him while drunk. This still didn't cause her to take her son and leave. I really don't know what to say anymore. And the ethicist writes, A proverb from my part of Ghana says, Marriage is like a ground nut. You must crack it to see what is inside. It's hard to figure out what's going on in other people's relationships. In particular, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to why people stay with abusive partners long after their friends have all concluded that they should leave. Although your friend offers you no explanation for why she remains with her abuser, the fact that she regularly tells you about his appalling behavior indicates that she's highly aware of the problem and seeks corroboration and support from you. So far as I can tell, you've done all the right things. You've made it clear to her that she's a person of value, that she doesn't deserve to be treated this way, 
that she isn't alone, and that she'll have a good network of support if she chooses to leave. You've let her know, too, that you understand the suffering her husband is causing and the menace he poses, helping her see her situation as clearly as possible. It's certainly a dismaying one. While alcoholism can worsen domestic abuse, it doesn't entirely explain the propensity to engage in abuse. And given that he's driving their son around when he's drunk, he's a danger to both of them. But as you recognize, the decision to leave is ultimately hers to make. Even if the abuse rises to the level of a crime, the police are unlikely to be able to do anything about it unless she confirms what's happening. She's fortunate that she has someone like you with whom she can discuss her husband's conduct. You've preserved the relationship because you found a way to dissent from her misguided loyalty to her husband without tearing her down. Keep asking her what you can do to help. And though you can't dictate what she can do, promptings can be made in spirit of friendship. Like you, I worry about the dangers to her son. According to a 2014 analysis of CDC data, nearly two-thirds of children who die in impaired driving crashes are passengers of the impaired driver. Driving drunk is, to be blunt, a typical way that parents kill their children. Ideally, your friend should take pains to ensure that her son was never in a position to be driven by her husband. At the very least, you can suggest that she instruct the boy not to get into the car if her father shows up drunk. For that matter, the friend's parents shouldn't have let him be driven by a man showing signs of intoxication. She could give him access to a rideshare account and tell him to use it instead. It would probably be best if she told her husband that she was doing this. But she may be too afraid of her husband to take such measures and she would have to make a judgment about whether that would make her son a target of abuse. Whatever your friend does, she ought to discuss the situation with her son, who must already be aware of what's, some of what's going on. Therapy could be helpful to him, too. Discussing these options with her will reinforce the reality that her husband is a threat to her son as well as to herself and further motivate her to move them both out of harm's way. Being a bystander to this sort of horror show can make a person feel powerless. You've made it plain that you'll walk with her to the exit. All you can do is stay with her and hope she'll take the necessary steps. I'll close with a poem. Dog is a Way of Thinking by Magdalena Zeroski. Selected by Ann Boyer. Magdalene Zrowski, intrepid use of Seishura, a pause in a line of poetry, reinforces the theme of disciplined attention in Dog is a Way of Thinking. The poem frequent, poem's frequent midline interruptions of otherwise overflowing and jammed lines creates a gentle resistance to the ordinary flow of thought. This formatting allows the reader to slow down and take notice. It's almost as if the poem is using attention itself as a material, while at the same time proposing to describe attention. The poet's receptiveness to language and the dog's keen-nosed present sense. Dogs thrill at palpability. Dogs are expert at living in the moment. 
poets could learn from this too. But the real thrill here is for readers in that the poem, though its subtle formal play allows us to experience the appreciability and immediacy of language itself. In the hands of a skilled poet, even a mere comma can be the conductor of time. Dog is a Way of Thinking by Magdalena Zurowski. My language, which likes to prove I am not alone, wants to talk to me again today. It's telling me, don't forget, you want to be less like Homer and not at all like Milton, but more like your dog. Your dog, my language says, knows things are there, doesn't want blindness to see a world, only a nose to know what's knocking now, who's on her way home. There's no yesterday. Your dog, if he could talk, my language tells me, would every day, like a radio, catch an airwave and say, today. I'll read it one more time. Dog is a way of thinking. My language, which likes to prove I'm not alone, wants to talk to me again today. It's telling me, don't forget, you want to be less like Homer and not at all like Milton, but more like your dog. Your dog, my language says, knows things are there, doesn't want blindness to see a world, only a nose to know what's knocking, who's on her way home. There's no yesterday. Your dog, if he could talk, my language tells me, would every day, like a radio, catch an airwave and say, today. Anne Boyer, who chose this poem, is a poet and essayist. Her memoir about cancer and care, The Undying, won a 2020 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. And the poet today, Magdalena Zorowski, is a poem, is a poet whose most recent collection is The Tiniest Muzzle Sings Songs of Freedom, Wave Books, 2019. Companion Animal, Litmus Press, 2015, won a Norma Faber First Book Award from the Poetry Society of America. Her novel, The Bruise, was published by FC2 in 2009. She is currently a Fulbright Scholar in Warsaw, and teaches at the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine. My name is Bill McCann. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.